Welcome to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. My name is Christine Kim and... I'm Jake Clark. We are your hosts for today. Today is November the 30th and unlike most shows that I host for the Arts Report, this is a live broadcast. From the University of British Columbia, Vancouver campus on unceded Musqueam territory. Thank you so much for joining us today. For today's afternoon, we will be talking about reviews for two different productions, Enchanting China and Avenue Q. Then we'll be doing something special not normally done on the Arts Report. Um, I will be giving an overview of all the shows the Arts Report is covering between now and Christmas. Every single one of them, and let me tell you, it's quite a lot, but the reason for doing this is to give you, our listeners, an overview of obviously some of the best holiday performances happening in the city, and also because we want our weekly Arts Report listeners to come find us. If you are going to be attending any one of the five shows we announced today, please do be sure to take a picture of yourself at that event, tag us, the Arts Report, CITR, and you could win a chance to be present here at the studio, at CITR station, for our very last Arts Report show of the 2016 year. That's right. Uh, the Arts Report will be hosting its very last show of 2016 on December the 14th. Um, Ashley and I will be back on January the 11th. Um, so that's a total of about three shows absent. I know, quite sad. Um, so really, our next, our next week is going to be our penultimate show before we say hi again to you in the new year. And I'm going to be giving our beloved listeners a chance to come sit in on the very last Arts Report show of the year, of the year by just asking you to follow us. Um, and if you're already curious about the five shows uh, that the Arts Report is going to be covering now between now and Christmas, stay tuned because we'll be announcing that later on. Um, but for right now, we're going to get started by doing reviews of two productions the Arts Report attended last week and this. The first one is going to be Enchanting China. Now, I was not at Enchanting China, so I guess my role here is as the Inquisitor. What was Enchanting China about? Well, Enchanting China, thank you for asking, is a performance by mainly the China Broadcasting Chinese Orchestra. It featured a host of guests, such as the Vancouver Chamber Choir, Ottawa Back Choir, musical artist Sir Eli Gong Lina, and a host of other talented individuals whose names... I will not attempt to butcher. Um, so this program featured a myriad of different Chinese folk numbers. That was the whole uh, kind of premise. It's a night of celebration of Chinese folk music. And I personally had never really sat down to hear the classics of Chinese folk music. Um, so almost it's like the, uh, the great Chinese songbook. And really, almost every single one of them stood out to me because I had never heard this kind of music. Um, but, I mean, if I had to pick a few, some of them that uh, stood out to me, and maybe some of our listeners would know these uh, these numbers that I'm about to say. Um, some of them was Yalu, Lift Your Veil, Peacock Flying Over, Upset, and Jasmine Flower. Do any of those ring a bell to you, Not Jake? Not at all, but uh, 
In terms of Chinese folk music, I think I'm willing to admit that that's not quite my area of expertise. I'm curious about it, though. What, 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 was, what did it sound like? What was the lead instruments there? Were the lead instruments there? Well, Yalu and the Jingjiang folk song, Lift Your Veil, was sung by Sir Eli. Um, and, and this singer particularly won the Bronze Award of Pop Singing at the 14th CCTV Young Singers Concert, as well as the first prize for pop singing at the Harbin Musical Festival in 2016. CCTV? Yes, CCTV. Huh. Does that? I don't know what that is. It is a, uh, a content. closed circuit television. No, no. <laughs> it is. I believe it's a contest by the um, one of the Chinese broadcasting, um, oh, okay. so one of the Chinese broadcasting. Probably yes. Okay. Um, but the reason why I bring him up and also those two songs uh, is because the music that he sang really sounded like Middle Eastern music. Really? Yeah, like the su- kind of something that you would hear on the soundtrack of a movie like Prince of Persia. Like whenever there's the establishing shot of the onion domes, and then that's the sting that comes on. Like just the um, that's the, the funny thing. I whenever there's like uh, a uh, um, a scene in the Middle East in a movie, it's like shot of something very distinctive, like onion domes in Turkey or something. And then that sort of like I think it's zither music. It might be. I'm not exactly certain what the lead instrument is, but you know the sound, like that sort of high, sort of wavering music. And I'm like, good, good music, Sting movie. I thought we were in Strasbourg for a second. Oh yeah, no, I totally get you. Um, and that just really surprised me because I'm not saying that all. Yeah, I just I, I turned up the uh, volume for us to be able to hear our voices a little bit more clearly. Um, I hope is that helpful? Oh, I just thought my voice became much more like John Huston's. Continue. <laughs> but the the reason why is I'm not saying that all Chinese folk music um, has those Middle Eastern vibes. But when I did a little bit of investigating into the uh, track "Lift Your Veil," it's actually a I, I'm definitely going to butcher this, uh, Uyghurs, Uyghurs song. And Sir Eli, the singer, is a Uyghurs singer. And for the majority of us who have no idea who the Uyghurs are, they're a Turkish ethnic group living in Eastern and Central Asia. So it totally makes sense why you would hear influences. Um, they get pretty badly persecuted, don't they, by the Chinese government? They, I, read, I read an article about this a little bit ago. That's odd. Lloyd Kaufman, the guy who runs Troma. He's, uh, he speaks Chinese, and he actually has a degree in Yale from Chinese studies, and it was an open letter to the Chinese government. And he was actually very unhappy about uh, their actions because among them, I, I didn't know how to pronounce it, but the Uyghurs is, is how you say it, is that uh, they are heavily persecuted. And it's, uh, it's reminding him of instances. Like, and he's seeing this across them with, uh, of course, their pushes in Hong Kong, which actually Ashley and I talked about last week with yellowing. And um, so that, that is... they. Uh, and they are, uh, he mentioned that they're Muslim, I believe, that they are predominantly a Muslim group. And was that, was that correct? Because that, that would explain a link to the Middle East, to musical. Right, and also that they're a Turkish. Also that they're a Turkish, uh, from te- Turkish heritage. Um, but it's a good thing that you mentioned the uh, ethnic minorities because one of the cool things that the two hosts of the evening, uh, Zhao Bao and Betsy Lem Bigler, Bigler explained was that in China there's over 50 different ethnic minorities that the Chinese government recognizes. Oh. And the the Uyghur people are, are one of those ethnic minorities that the Chinese government recognizes, but I guess... Apparently they don't uh, get very well treated. Apparently they get scapegoated a lot and uh, get 
uh, sort of a reputation from the the main um, the government, which is based predominantly in, I, I think it's it's Western China on the coast. Would it be would it be Western or Eastern China on the coast? I actually don't recall. The coastal government doesn't look very highly on them. Hmm. Regional powers are just like Beijing, so they persecute them a lot. And I, I don't know if there's a link to uh, to Tibet, but it'd be they'd be north of Tibet in some cases. It'd be hmm. a stretch, which is which is a, a whole other issue. I'm not informed to talk about. And really, neither am I. I'm, um, I'm not an expert on the Uyghur people. Lloyd Kaufman might be, but I, I'm just I'm just kind of quoting his article. Clearly, he should be our next guest. Um, we could probably get him. There's a picture of him at the Norm. He's been here. Stay tuned, everybody. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I I thought that the way that the the two hosts of the evening brought that up was because of the fact they wanted to explain that music is a universal language and it is something that helps to create uh, unity within within China's very various um, among the various ethnic minorities living in China. Um, so the Chinese folk music technically is not really a homo homogeneous genre with, you know, the same sort of sound throughout the genre. It's more of a broad umbrella to describe the variety of traditional music performed and sung by the Chinese people of varying ethnicity. And uh, in, in terms of being a universal language, what were these communicating uh, to you as a, as a viewer, a listener? I mean, most of them when I saw exactly how these, like the lyrics, or like what the lyrics mean for each every every single one of the songs, they're mostly about love and and the affections of a lover who, um, who who is yearning, I guess, for for their beloved. Um, and th- and really, like the only reason why I know this is because um, I. I don't know if many of you guys know this, but I am, am not Chinese. Um, and in the audience, while it was the majority, the majority of the audience was Chinese um, people who are Chinese, but there was also uh, plenty of translation, subtitles, uh, context given, all in English. So even if you weren't, um, even if you weren't Chinese, you'd still be able to get a really good grasp of what's going on um, and one of the purposes uh, of the night was to just share more about ch- traditional Chinese culture uh, which I think that uh, which I think that this uh, performance really really delivered on um, and while I would like to really go over every single piece in the program because like I said I had never heard or visually experienced anything like what I saw last night um, we have a limited time frame and need to keep moving. Uh, so I'm just going to highlight one other number other than the Lift Your Veil, the Uyghur, Uyghur song. And this was a love song, just to, just to be clear. Lift Your Veil was a love song? Yes, it was. So Lift Your Veil started to kiss? Like that, 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 that's a nice image. Was, was that it? I don't know if it was Lift Your Veil to kiss specifically, but I do think that it meant Lift Your Veil and... Maybe or, it was. Or was I don't it a know. double entendre? Because that is also. <laughs> I I'm not a hundred percent sure I'm on that. I'm just saying, there's a few ways to play that one. There is a few ways to play that one. The next one actually is. I don't believe that this one was about love. I'm not a hundred percent sure what this one was about. But the reason why I highlight this one, and it's called Upset, is a from a Peking opera, which is renowned. And this piece specifically is renowned for the diverse tone and broad range a singer must present to perform the piece. This was sung by Gong Lina, who is the leading voice of the Chinese new art music. And 
seriously, this girl, this woman's vocal cords pitched and waned in in very, very rapid succession. Um, and at first, that kind of oscillation with her voice really uh, discomforted me. And I was very uncomfortable at first. But then, obviously, I became totally in awe of the fact that she could just do that with her vocal cords. Like, go go at such a high pitch and drop to such a low pitch extremely fast. Um, and that kind of and that kind of uh is what i'll say about many of the pieces i heard um i felt uncomfortable in the beginning because of how unfamiliar my ears were to that kind of musicality did it seem sort of like avant-garde music very avant-garde um and but the you but like once you kind of get past that uncomfortableness you can see that it actually requires so much talent to be able to do what they're doing um so in the case of upset her vocal cords I could just tell from the piece that she was singing upset that um, her vocal cords were just so strong. Um, And so I really wanted to uh, share a little bit of what I experienced last night. So a little bit, a taste of Chinese folk music. And I really wanted to play upset because it's very distinct, but I actually couldn't find a copy of the music. Uh, So I'm going to actually be playing a different Chinese folk music piece. What's this one called? It's called Jasmine Flower. Ooh, yeah, so I'm gonna be. Tea at home, actually. So, well, not based on the tea. This song is not based on the tea, but um, so I will be playing that. Um, and to clarify, Enchanting China was performed yesterday at the Queen Elizabeth Theater, and I got to see it yesterday. Then, um, but it's actually also going to be performing again tonight. Same place, Queen Elizabeth Theatre, 8 p.m. And the entire troupe is off to Toronto, actually, to perform at the Sony Centre for the Performing Arts on December the 2nd and December the 3rd. Yeah, that's a good venue. Yeah, so they're touring, kind of touring, kind of, sort of, uh, touring the country. Um, But obviously for the majority of us who is not going to be able to uh, attend the performance, here is... A little taste of Chinese folk music. Uh, This is Jasmine Flower. One second. Looks like we're. I was gonna say that song's very short. <laughs> I think that there is a different way to do this. Um, but just while we get Jasmine Flower up, do you mind giving a little bit of a brief introduction to our next uh, play review, which was Avenue Q? So Avenue Q. Um, okay, for those uh, out there who have seen Team America, um, the Matt Stone, Trey Parker movie with the puppets. Uh, Remember that scene in Team America where they're spoofing Rent? It's sort of like if there was an entire play made of that, but without the absolutely venomous tone. And that's um, that's that's essentially what Avenue Q is. It's um, a puppet musical, which is a little. It's over a decade old. This is from the Bush presidency, and uh, it shows. It does. This um, this really does remind me a lot of Rent in a few ways, and it had the very interesting message. It had a lot of things in it, which I, I've been on TV tropes a lot. This has really been 
cited a lot in pop culture, and we'll tell you why just as soon as we hear this lovely piece of music. That was a great preview. Thank you. Jasmine Flower, everybody. Who's she? Oh, okay. That's the name of the song. Okay.
That was Jasmine Flower, a little taste of Chinese folk music, which I heard a lot of yesterday at the Queen Elizabeth Theater from Enchanting China. Um, but like Jake was saying right before we played Jasmine Flower, uh, the Arts Report not only went to go see Enchanting China, but we also went to go see Avenue Q. Yeah, and uh, as elegant and uh, light as that was, Avenue Q was a bit uh, different in tone, let's say that one. How would you characterize the tone of Avenue Q before we start off? I would say it was like a dark comedy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that fits. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I... I really think that the titles for the musical numbers can speak for themselves, including What Do You Do With the B.A. in English? I was really hoping they were going to answer that because I'm in English. They did not. Uh, it Sucks to Be Me, If You Were Gay, Everyone's a Little Bit Racist, The Internet is for Porn, I'm Not Wearing Underwear Today, You Can Be As Loud As The Hell You Want, parentheses When You're Making Love, My Girlfriend Who Lives in Canada, um, oh, a reprise of It Sucks to Be Me, The More You Rub Someone, that's, that's in the title, Schadenfreude, I wish I could go back to college. Oh, I got a bet on that one. School for Monsters, there's a, uh, an, oh yeah, and another reprise of What Do You Do With the BA in English, among others. Yeah, yeah, this is, uh, this is pretty entertaining. Which number was your favorite? Oh, um, honestly, I think my personal favorite one was, um, What Do You Do, no, I, I honestly think uh, If You Were Gay was pretty funny. I concur. Uh, that was so. Some of the characters in this include Princeton, who's sort of the protagonist. Would you say he's the protagonist? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, he's he's the guy who gets a BA in English and has no idea what to do with it. Very original character device there. Um, and he moves to the Avenue Q, and actually he started Avenue A, but uh, the prices were a bit much. So Avenue <laughs> Q is what he can afford. <laughs> Vancouver doesn't even make it past. Uh, uh, he doesn't make it past M. Um, so he uh, and he has these neighbors, uh, Kate Monster, who is an elementary school teacher who has a, who has a crush on him. Uh, his landlord is Gary Coleman, just just literally Gary, not not Gary Coleman himself playing this character. Because Gary Coleman's dead, but Gary Coleman as a character is his landlord. Um, his neighbors are um, well. For one thing, there's Rod and Nikki, who are roommates. And Nikki's a, it's an odd couple situation, and that's the uh, time when If You Were Gay comes up. Because uh, Rod is, um, his closet's made of plexiglass. It's, uh, I'd say it's a little, it's uh, quite visible. Um, that he is, just stereotypically, like he's, so they come in on him, his favorite book is Broadway musicals of the 1940s. They're telegraphing it pretty hard. But the thing is, he's a, uh, he's a stockbroker and a Republican. So he asks the, um, the other neighbor, and I can't remember um, who, one of the neighbors is Brian, and his, his wife is uh, a, uh, a counselor, and what, what was her name, the character's name? I, I liked her a lot. Um, she was a lot of fun. Oh, Christmas Eve. Oh, that's fitting. <laughs> yeah, her name is uh, Christmas Eve, and um, the, Rod goes to her, he asks for advice, and, and she tells him, don't worry about it, gay people, don't worry about coming out, gay people have made many contributions to the arts and culture and what have you, and then he says, oh, but, but uh, the gay friend I have is, is a stockbroker and a Republican. She's like, okay, no, stay in the closet. Tell him to stay in the closet and never come out. And he's like, okay. Well, that wasn't helpful. <laughs> yeah, no. And um, that's, the, that's the, where the girlfriend in Canada comes in is his attempts to... Um, 
prove that he's straight. And I actually heard this line before. I didn't know where is. Her name is Alberta. She lives in Vancouver. And he just goes on this tirade that is very patently untrue about having a girlfriend in Canada. That's his story. Um, Would you say that the play at the very end left you depressed? Oh, the ending of this play. Um, it's hard to explain the ending of this to figure out before without explaining what is sort of leads up to it, though. Like, That's true. Spoiler alert, everybody. So the plot, if there really is one, is Princeton wants to find his purpose. An emphasis on if there is a plot. If there is one, because um, I wouldn't call this necessarily nihilistic, but it's definitely absurdist in that uh, he really seems deluded when he's talking about it. He seems very naive. And... Uh, Eventually, he realizes by giving to a homeless person that his purpose, such as he sees it, is philanthropy because it feels good to give to homeless people, which it, it's a very cynical musical number where they realize that. So his charity, the purpose he wants to charitably accomplish, is getting Kate Monster her own school for monsters. The funny thing is, when they introduce that, it's because there's prejudice against monsters, but that leads into the number everyone's a little bit racist, which... Okay, that was a little questionable, but you, I could see where they were, what they were aiming at with that one, a little, a little bit. That one, that one is probably the most questionable number in the in the entire show. I would have to agree with that. Um, but uh, like the school for monsters idea, it comes off because there's another monster named Trekkie Monster, who is my favorite character in the show. He sounds like Tom Waits with acute laryngitis, like. Or, which is just really Tom Waits normally. Um, and he is the one who leads the song, The Internet is for Porn. Which is actually, Kate Monster starts off by asking what she can teach her students about. And she comes on the in- she comes on to the internet. And, then, and all the wonderful uses of the internet, other than for porn. To which he adds, for porn! At the that, was an, that was a great impression. That I can do a great very... impression of him. <laughs> That's actually what... Trek, Trek monster, Trekkie, 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 Trekkie monster sounds like. And um, his, he's that character is the dirty cookie monster. Is what he looks and acts like almost exactly. He's a shut in, who, uh, yeah, yeah. He's a, he's pro- probably you know requires a lot of hydration. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? He, uh, he's running a deficit. That's of disgusting. Uh, I could go on. I, I could go on for this a lot. I listen to a lot of Primus, so I have a lot of ways to spin this one. Um, but. Uh, so that he's sort of a minor character, but he does come up later. And Kate is the only one who really has a purpose, like a, a straightforward understanding of what she wants to do. The rest of them don't really have an arc so much. Other characters don't. Like Rod comes out in the end, um, which is which is okay. He yeah, does, that, that's he does have an arc actually. He does have a story, um, but Gary Coleman doesn't. Brian and Christmas don't really. No, I found I found that funny though because she just yells at like he's a he's a caterer who wants to be a comedian and uh she just yells at him to get a job he's like okay <laughs> I, I i believe it i, I believe it she was pretty author- the, the actress who played her kimmy Choi could really project so that came across well i would be remiss though if i didn't mention um the voice of trekkie was scott bellis who i remembered from last year because he was lucius o'trigger in the rivals and The Rivals is one of the, my favorite plays that I saw last year. It was a really good play. And Lucius O'Trigger in The in the Rivals was portrayed as this cartoonish American character. Like he had and actually had like this. Sort of a cross between Foghorn Leghorn and George W. Bush. 
And his accent, he sounds nothing like that, but he does these voices for, um, for Nikki. Yeah. For Drunky Monster. For the, one of the bad idea bears. Who are a pair of bears who show up to make people do bad ideas. They actually... One of the funniest jokes in the movie, which was a really dark joke, I think... They were my favorite characters of Avenue Q, the bad news bears. They were, they were the bad idea bears. Bad ideas. Bad idea bears. Yes, there was no Walter Matthau in this one, <laughs> although that would be well, that would have been funny. Um, but they, they would show up as sort of like angel devil on your shoulder, except they both give bad advice. And they show up, I think, last in the movie at the re- second act reprise of It Sucks to Be Me when... Um, Princeton is really depressed and they give him a noose and they really cheerily sort of tell him that hanging himself is an option. But they only gave him the noose after a whole bunch of extraneous, like not very serious suggestions. Like, no, oh, maybe like, you should do this, maybe you should do this. And then all of a sudden, maybe you should just hang yourself. Maybe you should just hang yourself. Like, that's, like, whoa, that escalated. I think I said this to you, like, well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> but that was that was the hilarity of <laughs> Anchor it. Anchorman. I, I thought that joke, that, that one got me. I laughed at that one. I felt a little bad about that, but I, I laughed at that one. I thought it was funny. Um, and they um, they sort of just, like, they, they encourage him and Kate to get really hammered and have a one-night stand earlier, which I'm not sure how bad of an idea that was, considering that does kind of consolidate their arcs later in the movie but that's but another thing wait this is Kate like monster she had an important she missed like like i think her boss had asked her to yeah, cover for her in terms of just yeah, like taking care of the elementary job. classroom and because of the bad idea bears um she she totally slept in because she was hung over and probably very heavily dehydrated because that sex scene went on for a long time. That's another way this was like Team America, by the way. There was a very long puppet sex scene. It didn't go as far as Team America did, which I was grateful for because halfway through that scene in Team America, I was like, this is drilling into my skull. This one, this one was funny. This, this was actually, this was legitimately pretty funny. For me, who's never seen Team America, I thought I was, I was very shocked. Oh, Team America goes in an R. Kelly and Chuck Berry direction with those things. That's that was a whole. This this was tame compared to Team America, and I was glad about that because there's there's some. I I've seen a movie called Cannibal Holocaust, but I I still have some. But that's the thing. I think at least Avenue Q, produced by uh, the Arts Club, it's. Yeah, the Arts Club did put a good spin on this. Yeah, it's not as as raunchy or as as inappropriate I guess as as some people might expect it's pretty oh, it, it's I would a, disagree with that it's a pretty it's like a dark comedy but I think that um I think that I don't know like I, I feel like I feel like junior high kids would still laugh at this and find it funny oh yeah I would have I would have busted a gut at this one in high school I would have honestly I, I I found it pretty funny now um the thing with this that really did one, the ending, which we, we should get around to. And the other one was the fact that this reminded me of Team America, yes, also of Rent in a similar it way. Like it's young people with big dreams living in a um, low-rent district. I liked the characters in this more than I liked the main characters of Rent because the apartment in Rent is huge. You've got to pay rent on one of those things. In this case, though, that same that same situation to me I find to be a looming 
the opening song is what do you do with a BA in English? I was pretty shaken by that. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that Avenue Q, while I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a completely family-friendly show, I do think oh, that God, no. it, I do think that really you can go see it as a family as long as your children are not, like, below the age of, like, 10. Um, oh, take your teenagers to this. I dare you. You won't hear the end of it. But I, Any adults who are listening but I do this. think that we should talk about the ending. We um, should, yes. Because, we built up to that. Yes. Uh, the ending is... The ending is a song called For Now. And um, do you want to... For Now is a song about how everything only lasts for now, sort of. The good stuff is temporary, so enjoy it. The bad stuff you will outlast. It was a very absurdist moral to the play, sort of. No matter what happens, a lot of your actions, if not all, ultimately inconsequential. But it also totally, it was a fitting ending to the big question of, I want to find my purpose. What is purpose? Like, the whole premise of at least the protagonist was this general vague idea of him trying to find his purpose, whatever whatever the heck that means, and ending it, ending the show by saying, well... I don't know my purpose, but it's okay because you don't need to have a purpose. You just need to enjoy whatever good things come your way and try and weather through whatever bad things will most uh, like certainly come your way. Um, And so I guess in that sense, it 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 left me feeling a little empty. Well, yeah. um, The funny thing is, I kind of Princeton sort of for most the sort of got the Sart thing going on. If I want to draw a comparison, existentialist philosophy because. It's a dynamic I like. So it's like, yeah, I gotta find my purpose. I gotta establish what I mean. And then in the end, it's Albert Camus. Like, yeah, I don't know. There might be a purpose. There might not be. Either way, enjoy the ride. You're here. It's a nice planet. Let's have a good time. Which I can get behind because I, I think I am more cynical than you in this in this regard. I, I did kind of, yeah, th- this fit, sort of. I mean, you do. It does help to enjoy what you're doing. Ah, uh, but that was that was sort of thing. It skirted nihilism for me, which was good. Like it, it wasn't a pessimistic ending at all. It was just, yeah, don't obsess over it too much. Don't, and most importantly, I, th- I think for Princeton too, the aim is not to stagnate in trying to search for a purpose that may or may not be. If it's not there, it may not be. You might not be able to find it. That to me rank, rings true because. I think it's really hard to see objectively or even even with reasonable certainty what you're supposed to do in life. Well, that, well, uh, we can just drop that sack of bricks on you there. Yeah, so actually this did not answer the question of what do you do with a BA in English, which I found to be a little irritating. I mean, start a non-profit. No, no, don't. Don't do that. There's a lot of them out there already. What to do with a BA in English. Don't wonder what you do with a BA in English. Simply... Weather through the crappy season of unemployment that might last a longer period than most people. Um, you gotta and, be in English, hell yeah. And well. and then simply join a radio show because that's what I did. <laughs> it's a good time. It's it, it really is. Well, I mean, on that kind of uh, aimless note, which is totally. Um, which is totally in line with. Uh, this is exactly how we Q. felt leaving the theater, by exactly. the way. Exactly. <laughs> uh, why don't you, Jake, give us give our listeners the details of when this show is going to be running until? So this is on at the Granville Island stage, which is a fantastic venue. Gotta love it. 
Uh, and I believe it's on until, it's still running. It was actually the 205th show we saw. Yes, and they actually had cake. Yeah, there wasn't cake. We didn't get any cake. Un unfortunately, but it's okay because Avenue Q... Probably wasn't for the audience. Wasn't it, though? They were sharing it. I just I just was didn't it? feel like cake. Those bastards! They, they, they denied us our cake. That's, okay, no, no, no. Just kidding. It was a great show. Great show. If you're listening, please don't burn us. <laughs> they, they were handing out the cake. I just rushed Jake out of the theater really quickly because I just figured, why not? Okay, anyways. They were overcome by pessimism. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Avenue Q runs until December the 31st, and like Jake said, it is running at the Granville Island stage, and you can get tickets by typing into your website browser or your phone browser, uh, artsclub.com slash Avenue Q. Another way you can do it if you'd like to speak to a real person is by calling the Arts Club number 604 687-1644. That's a great New Year's Eve present, though. For the new year, nothing really matters. Uh, yeah, I like we said, like we started off, this is no joke, a dark, emphasis on the dark, comedy. Yeah, yeah. Like, the jokes about Gary Coleman, too, suing his parents, those were also kind of dark. We, we didn't really mention that, but he, he was a minor character. Yeah, but he, he did have some pretty depressing lines that were funny, but um, in a very pessimistic slash cynical way. Well, the sad thing is mentioning his life is kind of a depressing topic, and that's a really sad thing to say about anybody. Yeah. So, Jake and I will be back after a few short commercials. Stay tuned. You're bummed out. I'm feeling fine. I already thought this. <laughs> you are listening to The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. Hey, Macquarie. Hi, you're listening to CITR. My name is Paula, and this is Pride Facts. I'm talking about legislative discrimination against LGBTQ plus people around the world. 73 countries criminalize same-sex activity through legislation. The terminology in the corresponding laws ranges from indecency, buggery, and immorality to against nature. Penalties can be as severe as life imprisonment. So-called propaganda and morality laws that target freedom of expression related to sexual orientation apply to 17 states. The most striking fact might be that in 10 countries around the world, homosexuality carries the death penalty. In contrast, 76 countries and 85 entities have anti-discriminatory laws that protect people of any sexual orientation. All this information is derived from a paper called State-Sponsored Homophobia 2016, a world survey of sexual orientation laws, criminalization, protection, and recognition. Get educated. Happy Pride, everyone. Are you interested in indigenous issues? Are you down with decolonization? Do you have something to say or have a topic to share? We have just the thing. Join UBC's first ever Indigenous Radio Collective. We're a team of Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. I'm Niska from my mother. From the Taltan Territory. I'm a settler from Washington State. I'm from the Qualcomm and Musqueam First Nations. I am Quechua Indigenous from Saraguro, Ecuador. We broadcast from the traditional, ancestral, and unceded land of the Hunkaminam-speaking Musqueam people. Whatever you want to talk about, we're into it. Everyone is welcome, no experience necessary. Unceded Airwaves airs every Wednesday from 1 to 2 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. And we meet every Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. to plan our upcoming shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Unsealed Airwaves. We want to hear your story. 
come and get your love. Love that song in Guardians of the Galaxy. It's a fantastic song. Yeah. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> you are listening to the Arts Report. My name is Christine Kim. And I am actually not Pavarotti in training. I'm Jake Clark. <laughs> Could you um, tell? For me, these last couple months have seriously flown by. Have, have they flown by for you, Jake Clark? For me? Um, well, you know, when you look at anything in retrospect, it seems to go faster than it does. That's a good point. It's just, yeah, it's a bit of perspective. You know, I drink coffee so my dreams go faster sometimes, like the Indy 500, right before I go to sleep. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to explain that one any further. I think it's just for itself. <laughs> I was seriously thinking it was only yesterday that I was prepping for Fringe Festival. And we were actually just talking about in the break, the Fringe Festival. And yet, here I am now, about to give you guys the rundown of Push Festival 2017. That's right, the showcase of live performing arts by artists from all over the globe, which will be happening from January the 16th to February 5th. And you might be thinking, oh, Christine, that's so far away. Why are we talking about it now? Well, there are some special limited quantity passes you need to know about now this instant and you will be interested in these special limited quantity passes if you are between the ages of 18 to 24 which is mostly the demographic of our people who listen to this show um but even if you're not within that age range uh to explain further of push festival 2017 i'm going to be playing an interview that i had with the push festival assistant curator Joyce Rosario. Take a listen. Great. Um, my name is Joyce Rosario. I am the associate curator of the PUSH International Performing Arts Festival. Perfect. What has your involvement been with the PUSH Festival in previous years? Oh, sure. Um, so I have been the associate curator here at PUSH since uh, May 2014. Yeah, so this will be... Um, 15, 16, 17, no, since May 2013, I've been here. Mm. Yeah, so I've been here for four, this will be my fourth festival in 2017. So I I usually count by the number of festivals that I have been involved with. Um, And so in my role here as associate curator, um, I'm part of the curatorial team. So we choose um, the performances that you see. Um, We work with our partners to Um, choose the right venues for the performances, Uh, we schedule um, when the performances will be where, and we see a lot of work during the year. And when I say we, I mean myself um, and Norman Armour, who is our artistic and executive director. So we kind of uh, spell off on travel and um, go to different parts of the country and the world to see work Mm -hmm. um, to program, yeah. And it's, credi- it's incredible how international the works are, um, especially this year. And given your extensive uh, extensive experience being a curator for the Push Festival um, for many years now, I was wondering if the shows that you guys were looking for this year, the kind of criteria that you guys have for this year, was any different from previous years? And if so, in what ways? You know, for all of the work that you see that is at the festival in any given year, um, more often than not, it takes, you know, a year, often, you know, three or four years to make a show happen at the festival. Not always, but in in a lot of cases, um, you know, these are works that 
we've seen at a particular festival, we've stayed in touch with the artist over many years, maybe the show that we're presenting is not that first show that we originally saw by that particular artist, but it's something that they're currently working on. Um, and because it's live performance, because we're dealing with uh, humans and schedules and flights and hotel rooms, um, it's not as simple a proposition as, you know, say, hanging a painting on the wall. There's a lot of logistical um, considerations. Um, and so, you know, we're constantly um, looking at work that we want to bring to Vancouver. And often um, when we see a pattern emerging, it, it's after we've kind of um, done our first draft of, of what a program um, could potentially look at, look like. Pardon me. Um, and we notice, for example, maybe in a given year, there's a lot of work that deal with um, solo performance or in another year, like this year, there's a lot of work that deals with the adaptation of um, existing works, um, for example, like with Macbeth that we have uh, with the Vancouver Opera. So it's not necessarily that we go into a particular year with, with a specific theme or idea that we're looking to program towards. Um, it's more like we kind of stay on the pulse of uh, trends that are happening, um, uh, prominent artists in, in the world repertoire, um, and out of that, we kind of notice patterns, or that that's that's how I've experienced it, anyways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and and I think that that's actually very important insight to how the Push Festival gets created um, every single year. And given that you guys have works this year from South Korea, England, Belgium, Portugal, Germany, and a host of other countries. How do you guys stay on top of the theater scenes in each of those countries? Yeah, um, for sure. That's a really good question. I mean, I guess that's one of the reasons there's, you know, two of us that look at work and it helps that we come from different backgrounds, um, different experiences, and that kind of informs um, um, our knowledge, right? Like I, I have a bit more of a dance background because that's, that's um, where I worked quite a bit uh, for 10 years before coming over to PUSH, um, whereas Norman has more of a theater background. You know, it's a kind of an accumulated knowledge. You can't know everything all at once. It's really an accumulation of years and years of, of seeing work. And for PUSH Festival uh, 2017 this year, if you were to give a bird's-eye view of the highlights, do you, how would you describe the uh, upcoming program? Yeah, that is such an interesting question. Um, you know, the idea of having a uh, bird's eye perspective, because often I feel, um, especially at this point in in the production, when we're so close to the festival, like, it's almost like I can't see the forest for the trees. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's all just like right, right there. But certainly, you know, um, one uh, big component of our program this year is a um, umbrella of work that's from England. Uh, we are working with an organization called Caravan, New English Performance in um, the UK, and they kind of specialize in new performance and um, promoting English work overseas. Mm -hmm. um, and they've been partners with our uh, of ours for a while. Um, and the work that they're, uh, that we've programmed with them includes really interesting subject matter and treated in really interesting ways. You know, I think there's a particular British humor that, that a lot of us, especially here in Canada, are kind of familiar with, that kind of uh, wry wit that we know is kind of a, a kind of a British 
trademark. And then there's also this kind of other thing about what you say and don't say in polite society. And and what I find is we have this series of work that is really um, tackling those subjects, you know, whether it's mental health, uh, whether it's uh, different abilities. We have a series of work that's approaching um, those topics. So, for example, uh, Backstage in Biscuitland is by a company called Tourette's Hero, and the artistic director who's in the show is Jess Tom, and she herself um, has Tourette's. Yeah, and it's a really, really fun show. You know, it takes a very humorous uh, perspective um, of Tourette's. It really kind of is an example of, of um, when we create space for difference, how much we have to gain from that. Um, and you kind of, you know, if she doesn't hit you over the head with that. It's just sort of all of us in it together um, experiencing the show. And I think it's, it's uh, quite an experience. We have a show called Every Brilliant Thing. Um, the solo performer in it is actually a stand-up comic, and the show is about uh, depression and suicide. Really, really hard topics. Uh, it's interesting that the performer himself is a stand-up comic, um, and he plays a character who, uh, whose mother, uh, from a young, um, uh, from the time he's very young, has always suffered from depression. And his tactic to kind of get through that and to help his mother get through that is to make a list of every brilliant thing. And that is kind of the premise of the show. There's, there's audience interaction, uh, some beautiful, beautiful storytelling. And the style is certainly informed by his own background as a stand-up comic. Mm-hmm. And actually, mm-hmm. your mentioning of every brilliant thing and the premise of it really reminded me of a uh, local theater show called Not Enough um, that also tackled the topic of depression and was by a stand-up comedian, um, but obviously here in Vancouver. Uh, so that kind of leads to my next question about were you surprised at, at any of the shows or ideas coming from a particular country? You know, when we're looking at work, yes, absolutely, we're highlighting, because we're an international festival, we write right beside the name of the artist where they're from. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that is not necessarily because we feel that, you know, we're choosing artists that are representative of, of the countries that they come from. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, to have one work stand in for, for a whole country is, is, is kind of difficult. I mean, certainly different countries or a a group of artists that work together, you'll see particular trends. And and perhaps because of um, the way an artistic milieu has developed in that country, um, there are certain marks that that are prominent. I think this is the first time we've had work from South Korea with um, uh, oil pressure vibrator, Gumyung Jong. You know, that was that's a surprising work to me, or her, her work as an artist is surprising, um, but not so much because she's from Korea. It's just because of how she is um, putting together all of her artistic influences and, and how she uses it to express what she's expressing. Um, you know, she has a background in choreography. She um, has trained in puppetry. She is probably known more as a performance artist and, you know, I can explain all of that to you, but it really couldn't, without seeing it and experience it, experiencing it, wouldn't necessarily give you an indication of, of what the work's going to be like. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of an adventure that way, and I think that's why people appreciate 
push. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I mean, that's totally fair. And I think that's an important distinction to make. I mean, one of the things that I always kind of differentiated in my mind between push and other the- theatrical festivals like uh, Fringe uh, mm-hmm. was is was the fact that it, it focuses on, um, it tries to highlight, I guess, international artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for yourself, what do you think is the goal of Push Festival? And, and what do you think that... Uh, what do you hope that this festival offers to uh, to people living in Vancouver and to people coming to attend the festival um, as mm-hmm. an audience? Mm-hmm. Well, I think festivals, um, you know, by their very nature, um, are kind of celebratory events. Um, and you know, what makes festivals really important is is how they gather citizens together you know, in celebration of something, whatever that is. In, in our case, it's, it's um, international performance. Um, it could be jazz. It could be lobster. You know, like the festivals are kind of these cohesive, social, celebratory um, structures. And, and I like that a lot about festivals. Like to think I'm doing as a curator and in terms of my relationship to uh, my fellow citizens of Vancouver is if I'm really wanting to cultivate people's curiosity. You know, um, their curiosity to kind of encounter something different, to encounter um, performances um, that they may not be familiar with. You know, I I love the idea that um, because we're a multidisciplinary festival, we um, bring together audiences that maybe at other parts of the year consider themselves mostly dance audiences, but maybe because they've seen dance at push, they'll go and kind of venture into something more theatrical. Um, And I like that kind of mashing up of audiences, and I think there's value in that. I think, you know, that act of of being open to difference um, is really important right now, and I think theater does that, attending performance does that. Coming together in a darkened room to watch a performance together is a, I think it's kind of a powerful act. Mm-hmm. And thank you so much, Joyce, for um, taking the time to speak with me and the Arts Report uh, just generally about uh, Push Festival this year. And would you would you mind um, giving us, again, the details of Push Festival 2017, um, as well as how people can find out more? Well, Push Festival 2017 takes place January 16th to February 5th, 2017 um, at venues all across Vancouver. For any information about tickets, about shows, about passes, to read our blog, you can go to our website, uh, pushfestival.ca. We have an amazing, amazing youth pass available at the moment, which is available to youth between the ages of 16 and 24, I believe. Um, and it's $20 to access four shows that you can book in advance. So I think that's my special plug for Campus Radio. <laughs> that's a great deal. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And um, they're kind of um, in limited quantities. So at Fest, we've always known that um, price barrier has, is the biggest one for, for young people. Um, sure. And so, you know, we really wanted to kind of foster that, um, that audience. Um, and I think the kind of work that we do that's a bit 
experimental, that's adventurous, that's in your face, that's challenging. It's more conducive for us to have a younger audience, I would say. <laughs> and I do think that with those uh, those special price tickets, uh, you guys will reap the benefits of having more youth uh, come out to come out to see the, the the shows for Push Festival this upcoming year. Um, yeah. Great. Well, I mean, I guess as the dates draw near, um, I look forward to uh, hearing more about Push um, and getting to uh, talk a little bit more about any of the shows that are coming up. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, I'd love to chat anytime. Thank you again, Joyce. Fantastic. Oh, I've certainly been pushed into internist over the fence. That was terrible. Disregard. <laughs> That's right. As, Je- as uh, Joyce said, oh, act fast. The festival, this festival is not one you're going to want to miss out on. And given that this show is, the Arts Report, is very close to being over, we've got literally two minutes left, um, I am going to be just, like, as bullet points, giving you the five shows that the Arts Report is going to be covering between now and Christmas. Um, And the reason why I'm doing that is not only as the Arts Report to give you a good overview of all the incredible holiday productions that are going to be happening in Vancouver, but also because the Arts Report wants to invite you to come sit in on our last live show of the 2016 year. Um, And the the way that you can do that is by... um, taking a picture of yourself at the venue um, of any of the five shows that I'm about to say, take us, the Arts Report, at Arts Report CITR, that's our handle, um, and then we will contact you um, uh, if you are picked to come sit in on our very last show of the 2016 year, which is on December the 14th. Um, And on that note... uh, So for the stalkers, our show tonight. Yes, our show tonight. Uh, the show tonight that uh, the Arts Report is going to go be, go see is The Day Before Christmas, the Gold Corp stage at the BMO Theatre Centre. This is going to be put on by the Arts Club. And the Arts Club, like we said, put on Avenue Q, but they're also going to be uh, putting on Mary Poppins uh, at the Stanley Industrial Alliance stage. So two shows. The Arts Report is going to be going to see The Day Before Christmas, obviously, like I said, tonight. Um, and... Mary Poppins, uh, will be, which will be playing at the Gold Corp stage at the BMO Center, is going to be, uh, the Arts Report is going to be going to see that on December the 7th, um, which is, I believe, next, next Wednesday. Uh, December the 7th? I'm very terrible. Not important. <laughs> the other uh, we all the, got smartphones. Find it. The other three performances that the Arts Club is going to Arts Report is going to go see is uh, number one, an event very close to home on the UBC Vancouver campus: cocktails and carols at the Robert H. Lee Alumni Center. Yes. From four to six thirty, there's going to be a host of different activities going on to get you into the holiday spirit. There's going to be seasonal drinks handed out by Loaf Cafe. Holiday spirits, if you will. The UBC Valley <laughs> Group, um, as well as a Christmas tree competition. So, tickets, this is an entirely free event, and you can reserve yourself a ticket by going to tickets.ubc.ca, typing in cocktails and carols, and you can come have a fabulous afternoon with the Arts Report and many other people who are going to be at the event. Now, the other two uh, is Theatre Obscura, presented by Jacob Marley's Christmas Carol. We've already covered this on the Arts Report, so if you don't know anything about this, go go to our Mixcloud account, 
and check out the interview that we had with the director, Guy Fakon, and, and actress uh, Beth Gutterson. The last one is Good Noise Vancouver Gospel Choir's Christmas Concert, Something to Treasure. Oh, it's going to be happening at the Christchurch Cathedral on December the 9th as well as the 10th. The Arts Report is going to be going, obviously, on opening night because that's kind of what we do. We like to hit things off pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> that sounded a little weird, but <laughs> we, we do like well, to go it. visit our, our go uh, review these uh, performances and productions really early on. So just to uh, review uh, what I have said, because I said that really quickly, uh, the Arts Report is going to be seeing Day Before Christmas at the Gold Corp stage tonight. Cocktails and Carols uh, on the UBC campus at the Alumni Center. Jericho Arts will be at the Jericho Arts Center for Jacob Marley's Christmas Carol on Saturday. Mary Poppins at the Stanley Industrial Stage next Wednesday. I checked, it is next Wednesday. And Christchurch will be at Christchurch Cathedral for Good Noise Vancouver's Something to Treasure concert next Friday. So if you will be at any of these five events, take a picture of yourself at the venue, tag the Arts Report at Arts at Arts Report CITR and win a chance to sit in our last sit in on our last show of the year on December the 14th. So thank you so much for tuning into our show. Our, the next show that's up is RIP Radio. So please do stay tuned for that. For any more information on what we've talked about on today's program, feel free to reach out to us on our Facebook and Instagram accounts. Uh, our Instagram handle is at ArtsReportCITR, and you can find us on Facebook under the name The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. Cheers. On Friday, December 2nd, Spruce Trap will release their debut full-length album, The Wise Prefer to Perish, through Big Smoke and Eagle Time Records. To commemorate the release, Big Smoke is proud to present a special evening of music to celebrate community, our city's architecture, and the art scene that inspires Vancouver's cultural identity. The show will be held at the beautiful Christ Church Cathedral in downtown Vancouver and will be free to attend. Performances will come from Spruce Trap, Holy Hum, and Ian William Craig. Tune in to La Fiesta every other Sunday from 3 to 5 p.m. with your host, Nick Carano. Listen to internationally acclaimed Musica Latina Calente that makes your body Tune move into African your rhythms every Friday from 7.30 to 9 o'clock with your host, David Love Jones, as he plays a heavyweight selection of classics from the past, present, and future. This includes jazz, soul, hip-hop, Afro-Latin, 